Hi, this is Michael Yerke, president of Talent Live Nation Concerts in L.A. You're listening to Chicago Music Back in the Day. Welcome to Chicago Back in the Day, a podcast about memories of Chicago back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, Chicago traditions like sports, music, food, etc. My name is Pete. I grew up on the northwest side of Chicago. This is a special Chicago Music Back in the Day episode with special guest Michael Yerke. President of what? What is it? Live Nation? Now I can't. All these different titles you got, Mike. Yeah, there's about sixteen of them. Uh, no, just President of Talent Live Nation Concerts. Got it. Okay, I'm gonna memorize that. We worked together back in the day, and are gonna catch up on what Mike's been up to. If you have any ideas for the show or topics, feel free to reach out to Pete at backintheday.blog, and please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook. Wow, Michael Yerke, you made it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I'm on the right side of the grass, Pete. I'm on the right side That's of the grass. Right. Amen, brother. Yeah. All right, let's let's clue in our listeners about you. Uh, did, did you grow up in the city? Did you start out in Chicago? Yeah, so I grew up on the northwest side um, uh, on the same block as Mayfair Park. So if I say the Mayfair Park, Mayfair Park area, I really mean it. I grew up on the same block on Kilbourne, basically right at the Kennedy Eden's uh, merger at that exit at Montrose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up there, grammar school at St. Ed's, high school at Weber High School, went to DePaul for college, played a lot of basketball. And did you, and other did sports you play basketball with Shashevsky? <laughs> uh, I did not, but I know that he is the really sole notable alumni from a, from Weber High School or our or our most notable alumni from Weber High School but I think he's a little bit older than I am Pete Come oh on. is he okay just checking but I'm a fan but I'm a big fan of Duke basketball no doubt about it so you could have gone you went to Weber but you could could you have gone to Prosser I, I'm trying to think what would be you know probably like my dad went to Lane um Schurz was not too far from us and uh, that's where my mom went. So, you know, Shurs. I went to Shurs. Yeah, right there at oh, Addison wow. in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Lane. So I'm just. Okay. Yeah, my dad went to Lane. And I have quite a few friends now in Chicago who have kids that are at Lane. Well, it's not the Indians anymore. I don't even know what it is. No, Warriors probably not. So- yeah. Okay. So, so Weber, okay. DePaul. Yeah, and then I went to DePaul. You know, the funny thing is being in LA now for about 11 years, one of my first. My first year or two out here, I went to UC, went to UCLA's campus to you know watch some games and do some stuff and drove by Pepperdine and I'm thinking to myself when I got out here, why the hell did I never ever consider any school outside of Illinois to go to when yeah. I was in college? Like you just look at Pepperdine, it's in Malibu, looking out on the ocean, yeah. and UCLA, you know, next to Bel Air and this beautiful campus. I go, what was I thinking? Never crossed my mind. Um, and nobody, nobody really I grew up with or went to high school with, I don't think anybody really went out of state or if they did, they maybe went to Wisconsin or something. You know what I mean? But oh, it was expensive, man. We couldn't afford that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, I'm, my parents probably couldn't have, but, but I never even thought yeah. about it. So I, I yeah, yeah. Okay. You know. how, how did you get into music, man? Did it start in college or? So I, I started playing guitar in like high school, like junior and high school, something around, sometime around then. 
And then um, in college, started a band, was in a couple of bands. Well, the first band was called Maybe Definitely. No, actually, the first band was called Natural State. And then the second band was called Maybe Definitely. Wait a minute. Did you ever do Gordon's uh, Battle of the Bands? I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that we did. Uh, I'm sure that we did. I don't know that for a fact. Um, but anyway, so I was in the band and I was going to school and, and working, you know, part-time jobs and stuff like that. Bottom line is how I got into the music business side of it. Or the music side was my band, right? We, we played around right. the Midwest. We played in Iowa and we played, you know, Minneapolis and this and that, you know, around the Midwest circuit, nothing too far. Um, after I got out of school, I was working for a small business to business ad agency, not sexy. It literally was like Belkin Cables was their biggest client. So I worked there and for about first six months, it was kind of fun because there was a good group of people there. Then we lost a big client. They laid off a bunch of people and it started to become not as much fun really because of the people and you know, the people that weren't there any longer. And then they lost a second big client. And my boss said to me, Michael, you know, I don't know anything about the music business, but with your marketing background and with your passion for music, if you could combine those two, I I bet you'd be successful. But he's like, I don't know anything about it. And so then I went to look for a job. And I, I, at one point, uh, I had an offer from the Avalon nightclub, which Todd and Scotty Brown owned, and then an ad agency downtown. I chose the Avalon booking job because I thought it would help further the career of the band and open up some doors that wouldn't be open to us. Otherwise I could trade off gigs, you know, book somebody at Avalon and get us an opening for them in Cleveland or whatever it may be. So, and it was like $10,000 less a year and no benefits and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, but it's what I wanted to do and, uh, and give it a shot. And anyway, so long story short is, the band ran its course, booking Avalon, uh, and and liking it, right? And and it did open yeah, up yeah. doors. Like we played at the China Club in New York, and you know we 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 got a lot of good opportunities. Um, we played Cubby, we played Metro, we played the Thirsty yeah. Whale, you know, all that stuff. But it just didn't happen for us. You know, we were good, but I don't know if we were great. But I, I would say we we probably could have gotten signed because there was a lot of average bands that got signed. We just you know, we weren't you too. So I don't know if the world missed out on anything that big, but, but anyways, it just didn't happen. Right. It's a combination of, there's a lot of people trying to do it. It's luck, it's timing, it's right place, right time. So anyways, after that, so the band kind of dissolved and I was booking Avalon and then the China club had opened and was open for about, I don't know, eight months or a year. They weren't getting that great of acts or at least the acts they thought they should and and we were doing a pretty good job at avalon getting in with acts at the earliest stages like you know the pumpkins first show was in the in the in the uh what was called the cabaret room at avalon uh as a three-piece not as a four-piece band you know and they would those guys would hang out because we were right next to the l stop they'd hang out all the time like during the day primus's first show tools first show uh, so on and so forth, a tribe called Quest and, you know, just a lot of great, great acts. Right. And so I got offered the job at the China Club, which was a bigger room, bigger budget, bigger stage, all that kind of stuff. And so I took that job and worked there for about a year, two, two and a half years, left there. And then uh, in the meantime, I'd also been working part time at Gill Park, which is right by Cubby Bear. Yeah. and ran the gym 
and played in basketball leagues there. And that's how I got to know George because my team would play against George's team. Oh God. The, and, the Greek teams. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so um, that's how I got to know him and talked a little bit and I don't know exactly how it came together, but I knew that one of the reasons I wanted to work at Cubbyboro and the opportunity came up was because I wanted to learn more about real estate and I knew George owned yeah. a lot of real estate and right. was, would be glad to talk to you about it, right? And give you advice. Yeah. So I did that at Cubby Bear, working with Duff and you, and then- So we're talking like early nineties, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, like, okay. like, like 94, 95, um, yeah. around that era. And then, you know, we had formed that separate company, Conroy Events, right? And we produced right, some right. shows at Navy Pier for uh, V103 and WNUA. So we were doing these summer concert series at- that small boutique, um, yeah. you know, 15, 1800 cap theater on Navy pier. And we did some other things. Um, I remember we did a George Clinton new year's Eve show at the far end of the pier at the ballroom, the grand ballroom. Um, you, you always said, George, how did you know George Clinton or how, what was the relationship? I you so know what? I did. I did. He had kind of been away for a little bit. He was starting to come back and there was a buzz and I booked him at China club and it was a big yeah. success. And I hit it off well with his agent and also his wife and him a little bit. But uh, I just thought they were, I mean, these were like some of the most incredible shows, like four hour, five hour shows. You got to pull them off stage because you got to be closed. You yeah. know, 30, 40, 50 people on stage, people coming with, you know, artist passes from 1986 saying they should be on stage, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's awesome right. and just yeah. great show. So that's how I, okay. you know, got involved with George Clinton anyways. So then we formed that company where Duff and, and, and George and I would put in our own money separately than right. Cubby Bear booking. And we'd make or lose whatever, however the, if our decisions were good, we'd, we'd make some money if our decisions weren't right. Right. And then we did a Johnny Cash show at the Bismarck theater, Bismarck, um, which I still have the poster signed from Johnny. And that was oh. that first, behind that first record that Rick Rubin produced. I remember meeting Johnny Cash, shaking his hand, and they were like the biggest paws I had ever shook a hand with, like big, strong hand, yeah, super yeah. nice guy, and uh, really got along well with his manager, Lou, if you remember him. Yeah. Nice yeah. older man. Yeah, he was great. And uh, anyway, so we did a couple shows at Bismarck. I do remember it was like my first time. It was with, I think it was Johnny Cash at the Bismarck where my first time um, dealing with a union. And I remember- Oh my God, yeah, the costs. I, so I remember like in advance, you know, the Bismarck said, you know, you gotta order the stagehands and then the Teamsters, you know, and here's their numbers, right? And so we did, okay, there's six stagehands and four loaders and I got an estimate of the costs and, and you know, their hourly wage, right? So we put it into our budget and we're looking at it. And then I remember going to settle up that night with the union and they're like, he gives me the sheet and it's like 35% more than the wages. Right. And, and I, he was a nice guy. I think his name was Bob. I don't, I don't recall his last name, but I remember I go, well, Bob, like, you know, yeah, it was whatever, 20 bucks an hour times these many hours times these many guys. Like this is 30, 35% more. I, I didn't plan for that. He's like, Mike, you got to pay it. Like, but <laughs> but who's paying for like my health and medical and you know, all yeah, kinds of stuff. Yeah, right. Right. He's like, Mike, you got to pay it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> but, 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 and we ended right. up paying it of course. So that was a learning experience. Right. And, right. uh, and then at, at Navy pier, I remember a, 
some a different thing with the union, same union steward. It was like Brian Culbertson, who was the opening act for Boney James or something. And Boney's sound check ran long. And so Brian Culbertson was setting up his gear and it was going into uh, dinner hour. And so Brian Culbertson just wanted to like be on stage and plug his keyboard in. He wasn't trying to sound check. They're like, Mike, it's dark stage. And I'm like, yeah, he's just, you know, putting his, you know, he's just like, he's like, no, no, dark stage means no one on the stage. And they lock the doors. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. I now understand what dark stage means. So that was entertaining. But anyway, so, uh, so that was good. And then the House of Blues was being built. And uh, somebody introduced me to Kevin Morrow, who was the head of entertainment for House of Blues, and um, connected us. And I went down there and looked at it, and it was still being constructed, but it was looking pretty nice, right? And then right. I went back a few more times and met with Kevin and, and at the venue. And, you know, he didn't make me a formal offer yet or anything like that. I was just looking at him going, God, each time I come back, this place looks really, really nice. And I'm thinking, you know, all the way along, I think some of our, the reason why I got shows, whether it was at Avalon or Cubby Bear or at China Club was that Jam, who was the dominant promoter in the market for a long time, had a lot on their plate. And I would get some things just because I was persistent and quick. You know, I get yeah. the offer quickly and I was persistent and maybe some people like me a little bit, but you know, when I look back at it, I don't know, you know, they never love the promoter. Yeah. It's just a matter of, do you, do you feel, do you feel the need and do you do a good job and are you reliable? You know? So anyways, I just kept thinking I'm getting some stuff from jam cause they're not paying attention and house of blues, if it opens and I'm, and I stay with cubby bear, this place is beautiful. Yeah. What's going to be left? You know what I mean? Like I just yeah. did the analysis and I go, there's just not going to be that much left to go around. And so then my interview with Kevin was playing one-on-one -on -one basketball with him at a, at a gym off of LaSalle. I forget the name of the gym, but I think it's still there yeah. right off of Division Street. But Kevin is was a jock and, and played a lot of basketball. And so anyways, we hit it off. I took the job at House of Blues and started about three months before we opened. And uh, we opened in... Uh, November of 96. I started in September of 96. House of Blues was, is, and was beautiful. I mean, just, uh, right. you know, $30 million will get you a pretty darn nice building, especially back in, in the mid nineties. And it was gorgeous. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful opera house. Great, great, um, venue. great venue, great sound lights. I mean, just excellent experience for everybody did that. Um, and was there until, you know, around 2009, and the opportunity to move to LA and oversee the booking for our clubs and theaters came up. And, and so I moved to LA and that's where I'm at now. No, that's outstanding, man. President. And then Live Nation, when, when did they come into play? How did that? Yeah. So Live Nation bought House of Blues in, I believe Give it was around, around 2005. You know, House of Blues, when I started, there was four, four House of Blueses. There was this really small one, which was the first one in Boston, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, we have a 2,500 capacity room in Boston now, but it was Boston, New Orleans, LA, and Chicago. And then after that, we built Myrtle Beach in Orlando, um, and then Anaheim, and, and a few others. So that was great. You know, we were like eight or eight or nine venues of House of Blues and Kevin, who I referenced earlier was my boss, cobbled together a network of other independent promoters that we would get on booking calls with once a week and try and, because we were competing against 
what was the predecessor of Live Nation and it was called SFX. So Kevin had put together all of us, obviously that worked for him, but also, you know, people like uh, the Agora in Cleveland and the Raven Milwaukee and some of these other places, right? And a bunch of independents. So we, you know, Kevin would put together some tours where it might be 20 dates where it might be seven or eight House of Blues venues and 10 or 12 independent venues, right? So that was a lot of fun. And look, when House of Blues opened, it was the hottest thing around. I look back and think of some of the shows that sold out that really had no business selling out, but people wanted to come there. And, uh, and then some of the shows that, that we even got over the years um, were just, I mean, amazing to think that, you know, we had the Who and Pearl Jam play a show at House of Blue Chicago. And we had, you know, uh, Robert Plant play there. I mean, the Who played there multiple times and just, you know, and all, all these bands, you just go, wow, you know, an arena band playing, you know, Prince right. playing there for, you know, an after show after playing the Rosemont uh, Arena and Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. And just, I mean, just really incredible, incredible to be there in and see, you know, a, in a 1300 capacity room and look over and go out. Wow, there's Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend and, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. It's just amazing. Like just really, really amazing. And, and uh, when I look back at it, you know, you kind of got to pinch yourself because you go, not everybody had like that kind of opportunity, right. you know, to, to book some of those shows and to be part of the team that, that did that. So it was a lot of fun. And work at a venue where the, the acts want to play there. Hey. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I think, you know, Isaac who founded the house of blues, it, you know, if you have been to one, there's a, a, above the wall, there's a bunch of religious symbols and it's called the God wall. And he did it because he, he believed that the artists were kind of the modern day gods. And so he wanted them to have great stages, um, great dressing rooms, great hospitality to present their artistry. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Mike, in, in the early nineties, a lot of, you know, we're Mm -hmm. talking about back in the day. I mean, the Chicago scene back then, you know, was hot. Yeah. You had Seattle and all that, but Chicago, I mean, the things that you did, I mean, it was a interesting mix there. I mean, you had Q Productions, uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Quatnitz, uh, He He's out in and California Peter, now. He, I believe he is. I haven't talked to him in a while. Peter Katzis, who's definitely Peter? out here. I talked to him from time to time. Um, Peter's a manager doing really well. Um, I think Jeff, the last I had heard, was involved in the big three, you know, Ice Cube's basketball. Uh, basketball, yeah. He's doing, he, yeah. He's doing that, but... Yep. What he had the firm or uh, he yeah, had a big, yeah. a big management company, the firm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that uh, had a lot of really big clients at the time. I mean, I don't, yeah. the firm doesn't exist, but yeah, Pete, Pete, uh, I think, you know, Pete uh, is doing well. He's got a lot of, a lot of big acts. I know that he manages, um, Corn? God, was it? I was, he did. I don't know if he still does, but he does manage, um, God, he manages somebody else that's a band kind of from that same era. Oh, we're going to, you're going to have to tag him. I'm going to have to bring him on, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Because he should. Because he was uh, managing the Riviera, right? He was. Yep. Yep. They were, he was managing Riviera. Um, He, I think at a point they managed the Pumpkins. I'm not exactly sure, but. uh, Right. Yeah. He has, he's, he's done very well, I believe. Well, I mean, you had this collaboration, and then you throw in Brad Altman. I'll, I'll try to get him on as well. It'll be a hoot. And then you had Duff, 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know, everybody went on to you know great success, and they all played a role in uh, Cubby Bear being nightclub venue of the year in '92, uh, right? Yeah, the infamous, uh, but the infamous photo after the fact. Now I oh, wasn't there then; I came after after yeah. that. Um, yeah. So for sure, but yeah, those guys look. You know, Brad and 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 Jeff and uh, Peter, look, they brought they brought they rose Cubby Bear's prominence for sure. They brought in some really good acts into Cubby Bear and rose the Cubby's prominence. Um, I mean, look, I had a blast at Cubby Bear. I, I, I really enjoyed the atmosphere on like game day to be able to oh, walk yeah. over. You know, again, couldn't do it now, but back go over the back in the day, as you say. You know, walk over to one of George's rooftops at lunchtime, right. watch a couple innings, have a hot dog, and then go back down. And right. you knew above you, you know, there was a thousand, two thousand people, you know, pre post game. It was just a, a really good atmosphere. And, you know, I always enjoyed George. And like I said, I did, uh, he did help, you know, help me a lot in terms of understanding, you know, some real estate stuff. And I ended up buying, buying and selling some buildings, uh, two flats and stuff like that. And, um, but yeah, I always, you know, always got along really well with him. Uh, haven't seen him in a few years, but when I yeah. moved to LA a few times early on, I when I'd come back, I'd try and stop by for a Cubs game and say hello to him. Well, and stuff. I, 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 I don't know if he's that active there any longer is what I hear. From oh, that. he his kids and, you know, Duff are taking care of everything. But, you know, right, right. in fairness to George, I mean, it was his money that he put on the line to totally. quote unquote, I don't know if you want to say it's overpaying because – if you get an act to play a club, you get an act to play the club and then you reap the benefits, you know, down, down the road. But I mean, country and jazz, you know, through the cubby bear, I think that was pretty big us 99. And I think yeah. anyway, at the time that was big, mm-hmm. like you said, Johnny cash coming in the first time. I mean, that was, sure. I'm sure jam wasn't too happy at the time, but you know, no, but look, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a competitive business and you have jam as the dominant player if you offer less than they're offering, why are they going to come play for you? Right. Right. So, right. you know, you want to make, and that, that I would say what those guys were doing still holds true. You want to make, you want to make as fair a deal as you can to get the act to play your room. If you think they can do the business and we'd still yeah. kind of operate in that manner. Right. I mean, and overpaying is a relative term. You, you overpay if right. the show's a disaster. Right. But if the show's a success, then, you know, and especially at a club, if you can get a big name artist and I would tell you, that's one of the things that over the years that house of blues was really fortunate on, you know, through whatever means we'd have two to four big names a year playing there. Right. It adds to the cachet, whether it's, you know, the who Pearl jam, Judas priest, you know, like you go, you know, Hootie and the blowfish, Tim McGraw, Hill, like Prince, all those things add to the cachet of this is a special place so you're not going to get 30 of those a year because you know you sometimes talk to people and go why can't you just pay this arena act to play your room well you know there's only a thousand people in there you can only sell t-shirts to a thousand people instead of eighteen thousand. Right. they do it because they want to and it may serve a purpose it might be a record release show you know uh, like i remember we did bon jovi's soul club show at house of blue chicago when they kind of relaunched right and the label flew in people from all over the world to see that show um those kind of things you know are 
are what makes some of these clubs legendary. Just like Metro has a lot of those names. Cubby Bear has some of those names. Yeah. It yeah. makes those clubs legendary. You can say, hey, back in the day, I was there, right? Right. Yeah. Five Nights of Duran Duran. Or I just, I'm a big fan of the, the, the Tragically Hip. And those guys are friends of mine. Yeah. And Dave Karwowski from, uh, who used, who's in radio in Chicago posted on their Instagram four nights that they played at House of Blues. I forget the year, but he just posted it like last week. You know, and people were commenting. I was there one day, four day, and I sent back. You know, that was four great days and four great rounds of golf with Gord Sinclair and 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 Paul. You know, <laughs> you know those kind of things. People remember that. It adds to the legend. Oh yeah, Mike. I'll I'll start wrapping it up here, but uh, I know right. COVID twenty twenty. How, how's twenty twenty one looking uh, for you guys? Think we can get back to normal towards the third fourth quarter? I mean, you know, the 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 challenge is that someone this is not my phrase but it's i think it's it kind of hits a nail on the head unlike the uk who just made a you know a kind of a you know a statement that by this date you know you can have venues open at full capacity and you can do this you know we have 50 countries if you will and really yeah. even more so that when you get into the counties and cities right so what we don't know, it's, and I think a lot of us, me in particular, are feeling optimistic that we'll have shows in 21. The challenge from a touring standpoint, which is where my focus is these days, is trying to buy national tours of varying degrees, whether clubs, theaters, arenas, is can you go from New York to LA and play a full capacity? And that's the, I can't tell you here on March 3rd that you know, you'll be able to play Irving Plaza in New York to the Wiltern Theater in LA and everything in between at full capacity today. But you will have, I mean, look, just yesterday, right? Texas declared everything's 100% open. Yeah. You know, Mississippi did the same thing. You know, so there's going to be shows. It's just a matter of, is it a national tour? But our, our team has been focused on being able to book things regionally, whether it's you know, even through, all through during COVID, our guys um, in Atlanta have been doing socially distanced shows at the Roxy Ballroom, which is ours, which is a 4,000 cap room. Now it's set up for 550 capacity socially distanced. But they've been having mostly country artists because they can drive from Nashville. It's not, you know, they're not coming from LA for one show. And they'll string together another show or two, whether it's in Texas or somewhere in, in the South, and make a weekend of it. So I, there's going to be shows. It's just a matter of I can't tell you today when that full-on national tour is yeah. happening. You know, across every day at full capacity, because it does economically. You get much below fifty percent, or really even probably seventy-five percent, depending on the level of artists. It, yeah. It's hard to make economic sense. We can't pay them because we can't generate one hundred percent of the revenue. They have expenses. We have expenses. It gets challenging to go on the road. And then also gets challenging to go on the road and go, Hey, every third date might not happen at full capacity. How do we budget for that? You know, from an artist's perspective. So I think they'll uh, relax their guarantees for the next year or the, you know, to, to work no. with you guys or no, absolutely no. not. <laughs> no. Well, look, no. And I don't mean it in, in, in a bad way. I mean, look, no. they've all, just as we haven't had any income for a year plus, yeah. they haven't, they've had yeah. limited income. If, if they do well in streaming or merch or some other ancillary yeah. areas, they'll have some income, but 
they haven't had any, any income derived from touring either. And, and look, it's going to be competitive. The other part, like we talked about early in the call, you know, whether you're Jam Productions or Outback Presents or AEG, you know, I mean, the competitors are still going to be there, right? And so, you know, just because we may want to offer X doesn't mean the competitor is feels the oh. same way. So it's, it's still, you know, people will say, oh, you're huge and you're a monopoly. I, I got to tell you, there's, we have a tremendous amount of competitors in the club and theater world. There's even less of a barrier to entry, right? I mean, it's a little harder to build an amphitheater, but yeah. if you've got a little bit of money, you can put together, a, you know, rent a storefront and you can have a 500 or a thousand cap club. And, you know, you don't need $20 million to do that. So there's competitors everywhere. They're there. They're, they're, they're all, you know, they're all still existing and they haven't gone away. And I, I just don't see us getting a break. I'd love to, get it but I, I don't i don't i don't anticipate that and in my conversations with agents right now no one's saying we love you man <laughs> we're gonna cut you a deal got it mike thank you so much man this is yeah. so cool thanks everybody for listening to chicago music back in the day please give us five stars on apple Podcasts and smash that like button on facebook instagram follow us on twitter let us know what you'd like to hear about on the upcoming shows cue the music